If you would stand, if you are able with me while we read, the passage is a little bit longer, so uh, be warned again. But stand if you are able as we hear from the Word of God. We are in 2 Kings chapter 2. Now when Yahweh was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets, who were in Bethel, came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As Yahweh lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with you your fifty servants, or your fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of Yahweh has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent, therefore, fifty men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? 
Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says Yahweh, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of Yahweh. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are good. Please give us soft hearts, open ears. Give me clarity of speech. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, you may be sitting there thinking, what in the world did we just read? This odd passage, right? I mean, especially that last part. You got bears coming out of the woods, and you're like, what, what, how is this all connected? The author just kind of nonchalantly presents it there with no kind of commentary or anything. It just happens, and then Elisha just keeps going. You have all these parts of this story. They're, they're wandering around to these various locations. Elijah goes up to heaven. What are we to make of we, what we just read? What's the point of this narrative. And how is this supposed to be relevant to us today? Where is God in this story? How is God speaking? There seem to be random elements. How do they fit together? How would the original audience have even understood this? Because the meaning that's for us must be rooted in the meaning that it had for them. Now, before we go on, I want to say that what we need to understand about scriptures and narrative in scriptures is that they're not, or they're not newspaper articles. They're true, they're giving us true facts, but they're making theological arguments. They're telling us about what happened, but they're shaping it in a way that is pointing to something that the author, both human and divine, want us to learn. So what are we supposed to see. Every aspect in this story is actually important and fits into a bigger part of the whole, but how? How does that happen? Okay, because this passage is so weird, we're going to do things a little different. You know, usually I like to kind of walk through different parts of a passage and unpack it and apply it to our lives, but I need to show how this passage fits together as a whole before we can understand what this means for us today. So we're going to spend a decent amount of time kind of unpacking the passage as far as like what's actually happening and then we'll try to bridge the gap between the original audience and us. So it's, it's going to be a little bit different. So let's start out. Here, there's basically kind of two and a half parts to this story. you got the first part where Elijah walks around with Elisha. Then you have the second part where Elisha uh, is kind of doing his own thing. And then right in the middle, this is kind of the half part, is where Elijah goes up into heaven. So let's look at the first part real quick. We have them starting in Gilgal and going to Bethel. Then they go from Bethel to Jericho, and then Jericho to a miraculous crossing of the Jordan. So let's look at this. This is actually important. 
what's happening here in the passage. These cities may sound important and familiar to you, but also I want to note that geographically, they end up almost where they start. Gilgal is very close to the uh, eastern side of Jericho where the Jordan is. So this whole route that they take and seemingly do nothing is important. The author is making a theological point to the route that they are taking. I want to start with talking about Bethel. Bethel is associated with the town of Ai, A-I. You may remember that from Joshua. Ai, the men of Ai and the men of Bethel were all destroyed in one battle, and Ai was the second city that was conquered in the conquest when the Israelites came into the land of Canaan to take possession of it. So Ai is the second town. What was the first? Jericho. Jericho is the first town that they take over. That's, you know, they march around the walls, they blow the trumpets, everything falls down. That's the first town. What did they do before they went to Jericho? They had a miraculous crossing of the Jordan where they crossed over on dry ground where Joshua led them in that. So we're seeing here, in this order, a reverse conquest. They're kind of backtracking the way that Israel took when they were conquering the Promised Land. But also, at each step of the way, the sons of the prophets keep mentioning to Elisha, hey, your master is going away. So here we see that the problem in the story, or the tension in the story, is the idea that the man of God is departing. We've been following in our patient pursuit series the idea of patiently pursuing this wayward people through the man Elijah. But here we get to this point where the man of God is going away. So what do we do? What do the people of God, what should they do in the midst, or what, how should they feel with the fact that the man of God is leaving? But also, we get in this geographical order, kind of a microcosm of Elijah's ministry. Things went downhill, right? We saw Ahab. We talked about him a lot. He was leading the people basically into the worship that existed in the land before Israel came. He wanted to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And so we have here in Elijah kind of this going backwards type deal with this order of events. Seems like God is leaving his people this reverse conquest. Now we're going to see that that's not actually the case. But let's look at the middle. The middle of the sandwich is Elijah is taken up. The man of God actually leaves. And in this section, Elisha asks, hey, I want a double portion. Now when he says that, he's not asking, hey, I want to have double the superpowers. I want to be able to do twice what you do. That's what it sounds like to our ears, but that's not actually the case. You see, the firstborn son would receive a double portion of an inheritance. We see that laid out in Deuteronomy. So uh, all the sons would receive an inheritance, but the first one would receive twice as much as all the others. So when Elijah says, I want a double portion, he's saying, I want to be your successor. Elijah, I want to follow in your footsteps. I want to be the prophet of God. And then Elijah says, well, if you see me taken up, then indeed you will be my successor. So we see that happening in the middle. Now we go to this third part. We go backwards or forwards, depending on which way you want to see it. Elisha miraculously crosses the Jordan. Then he goes to Jericho. And we have this little interlude where the sons of the prophets look for Elijah, and it's confirmed, indeed, Elijah is gone. Can't find his body. And Elisha, while he's in Jericho, heals the waters there. He says, thus says the Lord. I've healed this water. 
But then he goes to Bethel. That's the third leg in the journey. And that's where he's taunted by these small boys, and he ushers in judgment. He curses them. We'll unpack that in a minute and try to figure out what's going on there. So Elisha is retracing the steps that they just took with Elijah, but also this path is following the conquest. We see this idea that God is indeed re-entering the land. Now, this whole thing has a fancy word or a fancy name. It's called a chiasm. A few weeks ago, we talked about the idea of biblical illusion, and we said, you know, sometimes we need to know these terms to understand a passage, and that passage we looked at back then was biblical illusion. That's important for today, too, I'll say in a minute. But the word for today is chiasm. Chiasm is important, and that's where it's, it's a literary device where the first half and the second half have a mirroring structure. And the emphasis or the point when you look at a chiasm is found right in the middle. You find this all throughout the Bible. Chiasms, they're, they're all over the place. They're fun to find. Sometimes you can look too hard and find them in places they're not. But here, there definitely is one. Because like, they're, they're going on this journey, and the author makes it very clear where they're stopping. But also, biblical illusion comes into play because of the conquest, of course. And there's parallels between Elijah and Elisha and Moses and Joshua. You know, we looked at how Elijah is kind of a a a form of Moses or a type of Moses and now we're seeing Elisha is like Joshua the name is even similar Joshua means Yahweh saves Elisha means God saves so we're supposed to be making a connection here so we got this chiasm complete with biblical illusion and that then helps us understand what is the point of the narrative what's the point Well, Elisha, here, when uh, Elijah has gone, Elijah has departed, Elisha asks the question, where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? Where is Yahweh? Is God still going to heal among his people? Will he still drive out sin, even with Elijah gone? And the answer is absolutely yes. So that leads us to our first point today. God does not abandon his people and provides a representative. God does not abandon his people and provides a representative. Hence the title today, Never Gonna Give You Up. So yes, I did do a little rickroll this morning with what we're doing. Now this is the main point that the original author was making to his original audience. The story that we're reading takes place in about 850 B.C. The original audience would have been 550, around 550 B.C. But the people receiving this story are not living in the land anymore. They had been exiled because of their sin, because of their idolatry. They were living in Babylon. Their Davidic king, their man of God, had been taken away. So they're asking the question, where is God? We don't have our representative. How is God going to deliver us? That's the question they're asking. And the author of Kings writes this story to share with them, to remind them God has not abandoned his people. There is a representative coming. God is not going to abandon his people. Take heart. This idea of encouraging and taking heart is very prevalent within Kings, but also especially here. Take heart. And we have the same question today. 
we're wrestling with, okay, where is God? In the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the trials, where is God? Our Savior, our representative has ascended to heaven. So where is God? Jesus is not physically standing next to us. Wouldn't it be nice sometimes when you're walking through hard things if Jesus was just here with you? Even in our household, it's, it's been hard. Friday night, I was throwing up, not because I was sick, but I was painting all day and the paint fumes got to me and I got nauseous and was vomiting. Later that night, in the middle of the night, Selah wakes up wheezing and Rox has to take her to the hospital. Well, she turns out she has RSV. She's fine. Um, she was, you know, didn't have to stay or anything, but that's why they're not here this morning. And of course, Rox is, you know, has no sleep. And we're wrestling with, well, God, where are you? Jesus, it would be nice if you could take care of our daughter right now. Maybe you take her to the hospital and, you know, we keep getting some sleep. That would be nice. Or maybe just heal her and we wouldn't have to do any of this at all. God, where are you? Where are you? Where is God? We are going to answer that question later. Where is God? But I want to dive a little bit more into the second half of the chiasm where we look at what Elisha does. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. Because if the author of 1 Kings, or 2 Kings, excuse me, is saying that God doesn't abandon his people, and Elisha is this example of how God doesn't abandon his people, what, is, what does he do? What does this look like? What does God do through his representative? Because that's going to help us connect what this passage is saying to our context today. Okay, so back here to our chiasm, keeping that in front of us. You see that there's basically three external confirmations that Elisha is indeed the man of God. You know, the first one, showing that Elisha is doing God's work, is the crossing of the Jordan. That one's pretty easy to see. Then secondly, in Jericho, we get the confirmation first that Elijah is indeed gone. These 50 people, which remember back to last week, you had kind of 50 soldiers happening three times. Well, 50 gets mentioned here three times. But anyways, these 50 people, 50 sons of the prophets, can't find Elijah. And also, and more importantly, Elisha heals. We see this idea of healing. And he does it through a word. You see, God doesn't toil. He doesn't labor in the sense of, oh my goodness, i got to figure out how to do this, or this is a lot of work. It's not like me in painting where I get really frustrated and I hate it. Instead, he speaks. Elisha does this stuff with the bowl and the salt, but it's the speaking. He says, thus says the Lord. Not, I'm doing magic stuff, but thus says the Lord. And there's a healing that happens. The waters are healed. We like that part of the story, right? That's fun. Then he goes to Bethel. We get Bears coming out of the woods. Like, what, what do we do with this? What do we do? Now, this part of the story, I want to preface it by saying this ought to be an encouragement because it's showing that God is doing something about sin. And it's the completion. You know, this is kind of a picture of the conquest. It's a completion of the, the fact that God is working. He's working. So he both heals and he judges. God is at work. So, that leads us to our second point. God heals and rebukes through his representative. God heals and rebukes through his representative. God isn't just present with his people, but he's active. He's healing and he's rebuking things that we desperately need. He's healing and he's rebuking. Okay, let's talk about the bears because we need to understand it before we can really get 
the importance of the healing and rebuking and connecting it to us today. So I'll put the passage up on the screen. I want to first note that this is happening with Bethel. Bethel is really the center of Israel's idolatry. The kingdoms had split. The northern kingdom rejected the Davidic king after Sol- or during the reign of Solomon's son. And they were worshiping a golden calf that they called Yahweh. And that golden calf was worshipped in two places, Bethel and Dan. But Bethel was the primary place. So it's important that this judgment is happening with people from Bethel. It's not just some random town. It's the center of the wickedness. Now, there's two problems that we kind of encounter, or at least two things that really rub us the wrong way with with this passage. The two things are the nature of the taunt and the fact that these are small boys. It's like, I mean, if you're anything like me, you read this and you're like, what do we do with this? This is hard. This is hard. Let's deal with the nature of the taunt first, because that's easier. First, this isn't just making fun of a bald man. In English, that's kind of the way it reads. We're like, oh, these kids are making fun of a bald man and they get mauled by bears? Ooh, that's an overreaction, maybe? But that's not actually what's happening. You see, there's a wordplay with Elijah throughout his narrative that he's a hairy man. Now, Elijah is gone, so it's the idea this head of Elisha has been removed. The hair of Elisha is gone. Not only that, but Elisha may indeed have actually been bald, and baldness did not run in uh, the family of the ancient Israelites. Baldness was looked down upon. It was not common. And so it was something shameful. So if he's bald, they're certainly pointing out something that they ought not to point out. But more so, it's it's probably a reference to Elijah and that Elisha's master is gone. Not only that, they're saying, go up, you bald head, go up. So probably, again, a reference to Elijah going up and saying, hey, why don't you get out of here like Elijah got out of here? We don't want anything to do with you, you man of God. We don't love Yahweh. He's not our God. We like our little calf, our golden calf here in Bethel. You go on and get out. So in essence, get out of here. What are you going to do about it? You have no authority over us. That is the taunt that they're giving. It's a pretty serious thing because when you mock the prophet of God, you are mocking God himself. They're not just making fun of the way he looks. They're saying something very core about who God is and how God operates in the world. They're saying God does not operate through his word. What God says does not matter. That is a terrible place to be. So that leads us to the second problem, though, is the age of the children. Now, a lot of commentators will say, well, these are actually probably teenagers. You can translate this, not small boys, but teenagers, and they use some different references. And there is some uncertainty and ambiguity here. But I think that solution to just say, well, these are unruly teenagers is not really faithful to the text. I think it's us seeking to excuse it because it makes us uncomfortable. It does make us uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean we need to find an explanation for it. But instead, we need to ask, why are we uncomfortable with that? Let the text judge us. Let's not judge the text. I think it's also possible that the author is making a statement about Bethel, saying Bethel is so bad, so corrupt, that even its children are mocking the prophet of God. This term, small boys or little children, is used three other times in the book of Kings. And each time, it pretty clearly refers to small children, small boys. So I don't think it's faithful to translate this as teenagers. So I know our youth group are, they're like, oh, praise the Lord, I'm off the hook here. 
It's easier for us to imagine a pack of unruly teenagers running around, but this is probably small boys. Now, these aren't toddlers. You know, toddlers aren't running around in a pack. At least, I mean, well, maybe sometimes they are, but this doesn't seem to be the case. These seem to be indeed, you know, these aren't 15, 16-year-olds. There's something younger than that, and that's hard. Now, this should drive us to our knees because it shows us how God feels about sin and that sin is real. And we've talked about that a lot as we've walked through this patient pursuit series. And we see that this consequence is ultimately what we deserve because of our sin. Let the text judge us. Let us see that and say, Lord, this is what I often say. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Let the text judge us. But also how beautiful that if this is what I deserve, and even from a young age as I've mocked God, that God would send his only son to die for me. That he would allow himself to be mocked, to suffer and die for me, paying the price that I could not pay. That's the God we serve. It should point us also to God's love. When we see things like this, let it point us to the cross. Because the fullest and clearest picture of God's wrath is the cross. It is the fulfillment of God's wrath. So when we see this, let it point us to the cross and say that the cross is a horror, but also beautiful because it shows God's love for us. Because that's what the Christianity is all about, is God paying the price that you and I owe. And I invite you, if you have not trusted Christ, if you have not believed in Christ's payment on the cross, I invite you to do so this morning. You can turn to him in faith. You don't get your act together. You don't do a bunch of good things for God to like you. You just surrender and say, Jesus, I believe. Your death was enough. I believe. So, with all of this, I also just want to remind us, with whatever's going on here, little children or youth, we know that Jesus loves children. Jesus, throughout his ministry, said, let the little children come to me. So I don't need to read this and be fearful. Does God hate children somehow? No, God loves children. He loves them. But with this passage, it's supposed to be encouraging. It really is. It's weird, but the fact that the author doesn't even really do anything with it shows us that they would, see this, they would have seen this as a good thing. They would have seen this, wow, God is doing something. He's bringing back truth into the land. He's judging idolatry. He's still here and still cares. He rebukes sin. So back to our second point, God heals and rebukes through his representative. Take heart, take heart, people of God. Okay, now let's turn our attention to us. Because it's one thing to understand this is what's going on in the passage. But what about us? Again, how does this connect to us? Do we just say, okay, God's here, great, he heals and rebukes, okay, go home. Well, that'd be nice, but that's not terribly helpful. So how does this relate to us? Well, in the Old Testament, you get patterns. Things happen, and they're ultimately pointing to Jesus. They are the shadow, and Jesus is the true object. Jesus is what these things are showing us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So if the promise to the original hearers was God has not given up on you, he will bring you back, he will give you a representative, if that is the promise, that is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the answer to that. So Jesus is what this passage is ultimately about. Not trying to say that the author of Kings had Jesus in mind, but that the author of Kings was talking about what God was like, and Jesus shows us most fully and perfectly what God is like. 
So let's turn our attention to Christ and how he actually fits into this pattern of Moses and Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha. Because Luke makes a very big deal of it. We've talked about Luke a little bit before when we talked about Moses and Elijah. But Luke loves to make the connection between Elijah and Elisha and Jesus and his disciples. There's a ton of parallels. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Like the guys who were looking for Elijah? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, let's look at this. Elijah was taken up and away. Christ was taken up and away. Elisha is left without the physical presence of his master. The disciples are left without the physical presence of their master. Elijah left a disciple to carry on his ministry. Elisha did twice as many miracles as Elijah did. Christ leaves the disciples behind to carry on the ministry. Elijah's successor had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Christ leaves the Holy Spirit with his disciples, and they will do even greater things than Jesus. You know, John says these famous words, or Christ says it in John, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So we are also Christ's disciples. Now, I'm not making these parallels up. Luke is actually the only gospel writer that even talks about Christ's ascension. But why? Why does he do that? Because he wants us to see the connections between Elijah and Elisha. He wants us to see there was a man of God, there is a man of God, I should say, but he has left that ministry for us. He works through us. So when we ask the question, where is God, this passage tells us, not only our 2 Kings passage, but Acts 1.8 as well, that God is working through his people. And that's a beautiful thing. That God does not abandon us, but he works through us, in us. And the more we become invested in the people of God, the more that we know God is here. What a loving God that cares in that way. So that gives us our third point for today. We. We are God's representatives who bring both healing and rebuke through God's word. We are God's representatives who bring both healing and rebuke through God's word. And again, this ought to be a take heart. Take heart because this is true. This is good. It's good. Even though we may despair and throw up our hands and say, where is God? The beauty is God has not left us. He's given us his word and given us each other. Now, I've very intentionally said that we don't just heal and rebuke, but we do it through God's word. It's what God has said. It's what he's doing. Elisha said, thus says the Lord, but also he spoke the curse. So let's talk about these two things, healing and rebuking. Healing and rebuking. Healing is more fun, so let's talk about that first. And when I say healing, I'm not talking necessarily about physical healing, although if God would so choose, sure, I believe that God can miraculously heal. But I'm thinking more so in the sense of restoration, that God restores us and his people. He does it through his word, through the scriptures. 
He makes things right. He brings restoration and shalom. How we do that is we apply the word to particular situations. We look at the situation around us and we ask, okay, what does God's word have to say about this? You know, last week I talked about scripture being sufficient. So, okay, what does God's word have to say for us in this area, in this category? What does God's word have to say? And then as I see what God says, I align my thoughts, my heart, and my hands, my head, my heart, my hands, with what God has said. Let me think, feel, and do what you desire, God. All in accordance with what he has said. Now, what type of posture do we have as we seek to heal in the world around us, in the church around us? Because when I think about us being God's representatives, it's we're taking God's word and we're seeing it and we're seeing other people's lives and we're asking, how does this fit into their life? Not just my life, into their life. We're healing one another in community. When I do that, I need to think of myself first and foremost as a gardener, not as a house cleaner. A gardener, not a house cleaner. A house cleaner puts on rubber gloves and scrubs everything down and tries to make something squeaky clean. A gardener gets down into the dirt, deals with fertilizer and manure, gets sweaty as you're out under the sun. You get dirty with the people. House cleaner is like, "Mm, I'm just trying to make everything nice around me. So we're gardeners, we're not house cleaners. That's the posture we need to take when we seek to heal. We don't just drop in, here you go, and then leave, you know, holding everything at arm's length. But we're getting down in the muck with them. So when I'm in a situation, I need to ask, how can I bring restoration to this? How can I bring God's word to this? And this is why we need to be in church community. If we're not in community, community together as believers within the church, we are being robbed of God's primary way of working restoration in our lives. It's us people speaking into your life, not just me, but the people in this room speaking into your life, helping you to heal. You're being robbed of that, and you're robbing others of it if you're not in their lives. So we are God's representatives. Isn't it beautiful God doesn't say, get your act together, and then you can get healed. But he says, come and be a part of this broken people, and it's through them that I will work and heal you. Beautiful truth. Now, some situations require soothing, repair, gardening. Others are on fire and require a fire extinguisher. So we have both gardeners, and sometimes we got to be firefighters. So let's turn our attention to the rebuke. Because you and I are not Elisha. We don't call down curses on people. It's very clear that you and I, as the new covenant people of God, we are not the prophet. Our prophet is Jesus Christ. He is the true prophet, the final prophet. There is no other prophet to come after him. He speaks with authority. He is the one who in his word curses. We do not need to curse. Jesus gave plenty of curse in here. We just hold the scriptures up and say this is what is true. But we do have to put out fires according to God's word. We do it through his word. And this is primarily to those who profess Christ. Not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about the world in here. We speak rebuke to us in here. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't speak to the world around us, but that God's rebukes through and for God's people are almost always directed towards his people. Towards his people. An illustration, you can think of, uh, the scriptures talk about it this way. We are silver that needs refining, which requires heat, not silver that needs wiping down. We've got to burn the impurities out. So sometimes there's a little fire. 
So when I talk about rebuke and needing to rebuke one another, it's not an excuse to be belligerent or for rebuking for the sake of I told you so or, you know, I just want to be right. But it's for the sake of right worship for God, right worship of God. We need to have that kind of heart. If we are looking to rebuke and correct, it's wanting people to rightly worship and be in relationship with God. So I have six ways that we need to do this. All, uh, well, not all drawn from the New Testament, but when I think about rebuke, you know, because we're not calling down curses on people and letting bears come out of the woods, but what does it look like as the new covenant people of God to rebuke? Here are six things the scriptures have to say. The first one is examine your own heart. Have to have a mind of humility. Examine your own heart. That is from Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So examine yourself first. Secondly, know your Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Know your Bible, because if we're going to be rebuking through God's word, you've got to know what's in here. You've got to rightly be able to assess what you need to say. Thirdly, seek to listen and understand. Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. If you don't understand what's actually going on in their life, you're going to be starting to bring scripture to bear that's not actually pertinent to their situation. You've got to know what's going on, or you may be completely misunderstanding what's actually happening in their life. Seek to listen and understand. Fourth, be patient. Be patient in the process. Don't just drop in, say your piece, and then leave. Be patient. 2 Timothy 4.2, second half of that, says, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Patience. Patience. And again, you're teaching. You're wanting people to have right worship of God. Fifth is bring the Bible to bear on the situation. Hebrews 4.12. Let it be the knife. Let it be the surgeon. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Lastly, seek restoration. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we're looking for restoration. Not, I want to tear you down. Restoration. So, when we think about where is God, God is present, working in and through us. The Lord uses us to heal and to rebuke. And this should all cause us to take heart and say, yes, Lord, amen, thank you. I'm not alone. In the midst of the hardship and the trial and the pain and the misery, God is here having other people show me where I need to be corrected, but also working in my life. So repeat our third point. We are God's representatives who bring both healing and rebuke through God's word. So here's our response for today. Lord, let me be healed and rebuked. And let me bring healing and rebuke. I have this because we so often don't really want to be healed or rebuked. We kind of just go throughout our lives or we isolate ourselves, so we say, let me be healed and rebuked, but also let me bring healing and rebuke. It's not just the people around me pouring into me, but me pouring into others. Lord, let me be healed and rebuked, and let me bring healing and rebuke. God doesn't abandon his people. He sends a representative. 
that representative brings healing and rebuke. And praise be to God, we are God's representatives who heal and rebuke through his word. May we believe that God is still here, and may we cry out, let me be healed and rebuked, and let me bring healing and rebuke. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you heal us, you rebuke us. Thank you that Jesus is our Savior. He is our prophet. He is our priest and our king. He is the ultimate representative. And we thank you that you invite us into restoration. Father, may we have hearts that long to be healed, long to be rebuked, and may we also long to heal and long to rebuke others. May we want to see you grow us. I pray all this in Christ's name.